Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode from the Embellish Pod. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully I can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, send them an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll get that taken care of. You can also find video versions of this podcast on YouTube. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or TikTok with the same handle. I have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's also a place to pick up these links, episode details, and more. Um, today we have Doc Swinson's joining us for what I think is a super fun conversation. So I hope you enjoy. Um, this this morning, this afternoon, whenever you know anyone happens to be listening to or watching this, um, I've got Jesse Parker from Doc Swinson's joining me. And um, thank you, Jesse, for hopping on and, and giving me an hour of your time. It's It's one of the few things that you can never create more of. Um, you can always create more of a lot of other things, but time is not one. And so it's, it's, it's very, it's very valuable. If you would, let's just start off with kind of, you know, who and what is Doc Swinson's? Yeah, John, thanks so much for having me on Embellish Podcast. Um, this is awesome. This is actually the first podcast of the year I've done. So I might be a little rusty, but I'm excited to get back on the game here. I think I did like 40 something of them last year alone. So getting better. <laughs> uh, but I, I'm Jesse Parker, the master blender, um, and one of the founders of our company, uh, this Doc Swinson's and our parent company, Distiller's Way. Um, and Doc Swinson's was kind of born out of um, a pet project, really. Uh, those of us here that, that founded Distiller's Way primarily focused on private label manufacturing. And what we ended up doing was uh, meeting all these wonderful uh, um, operations uh, around the United States, Canada, Europe, et cetera, on producing other projects. And we started falling in love with brown spirits even more. And we wanted to make our own whiskey brand. And we slowly did this by just engaging with these people and buying these older stocks of whiskey. I mean, small quantities, a couple barrels here, a couple barrels there. And in the background of all the other things that were going on at, at the company, we, uh, um, we, we think we kind of found a little bit of diamond in the rough and decided to work on uh, how do we create our own signature for our own brand that we wanted to release to keep us entertained? And it was fun. Like we really loved it. Right. And even against all odds, um, meaning the p other people who invested in the company didn't really want us doing this, <laughs> but what we ended up doing was creating Doc Swinson's out of it. And we, so we started the project in about 2017. Um, focused on developing different profiles that I wanted to release on the market. We'd slowly leak out a few releases here and there, mostly in two states, so Texas and Washington. Um, and then 2020, we said, heck yeah, let's do this thing. We're getting great feedback from the community, for the whiskey community. And we launched with a 15-year bourbon um, in several states. And there in stops or in steps Doc Swinson's into the whiskey market. Um, which was kind of fun because that was a time when uh, older age statements were incredibly hard to find. There's a dry spell on those. Um, and they were still relatively affordable, oddly enough, back then. <laughs> it's funny even saying that. It's only been four years, you know? Um, There's a lot of things that have happened in those last four years, though, if you really think about it. Oh, we're talking oh 2020. So. I think my hair's gotten curlier <laughs> from all the madness. Um, but no, Doc Swinson's, like I said, was was really the idea was to take um, and bring the idea of blending whiskey, um, being one of the other groups out there that uh, can put a good name towards blending whiskey and in particular finishing whiskey. We really struck the accord with wanting to finish products because once again, we're not distilling it and we're not processing the grains. We are sourcing or now contract distilling, in fact, as well. Um, uh, fairly common mash bills that you find in many of whiskeys on the, on the store shelf today, right? I mean, 98% uh, of our production is, is, is MGPI, right? We've had a relationship with them since 2015, um, uh, for other projects and, uh, it's just been really symbiotic. 
Um, so the idea is how do we change this instead of just dumping a bunch of barrels all together, putting in a bottle and saying, here's your, you know, your 95, five or your, your 36 or 21 mash bills. Um, uh, how do you change that? And of course that's where blending actually makes a difference. So focusing heavily on blending and maturation versus distillation and fermentation was really the focus that we wanted to have here. The focus I wanted to have here. Um, I'm a nut for barrels, man. Um, so I have a collection, um, quite a collection of different types of barrels from all over the world that we finish our whiskeys in. Um, so in a nutshell, a lot of this was really experimental. We've uh, organically grown it based upon the feedback we've seen in the market. And of course, what kind of harebrained ideas come out of, uh, come out of my, you know, dreams, so to speak, you know, or what flavor profiles I think uh, would combine, combine well. Um, we found some pretty good success in that. So we're now distributed in 27 states, looking at uh, over 30 probably by the end of the year, um, and growing our whiskey stocks considerably, which is which has been really nice. So I work in the software industry, and, and yeah. our engineers often say um, that it, naming things is the hardest thing that they encounter on a regular basis, right? Because you got to come up with it. How do you, how do you get to Doc Swinson's as a name? Like. So I'm so glad you actually said that because naming anything is difficult. Um, I released over 20, 20 some odd different leases in the last two years of unique finishes. And this is my biggest struggle, honestly, is picking a name for the darn release, you know? Um, oftentimes it's inspired by, you know, music and whatnot. But Doc Swinson specifically, <clears throat> well, we, you know, a lot of brands are associated with somebody that, from the past, like a historical figure or something like that. And our brand's no different in that regard, other than the fact we don't even talk about who this person was. Mm. We don't rely um, or embellish uh, about this person at all in our brand. We just liked who they were, and it's kind of a little Easter egg to where we are. So for those of you who don't know, Doc Swinson's is entirely blended and bottled in our facilities up here um, north of Seattle, Washington, near the Canadian border, um, right on the sea. And uh, some of you might know Bellingham or Ferndale, and that's where that's where we're based. And most of us here that founded the company are either from uh, the general Seattle uh, region or area. And so Doc Swinson's was a, kind of an ode to one of the founders of Seattle. Um, he was an interesting character. Uh, he was a doctor, a lawyer, back when you can do all those kind of things all in one practice, um, and also helped uh, Seattle um, get its name um, through Chief Self. Um, which is where it comes from. Um, and we just kind of thought it was a fun name. It kind of fit with the brand identity, which is we're a little bit harebrained, a little bit crazy. We're definitely West Coast in some regard, right? We're still kind of traditional though. Um, but uh, uh, originally the, the label I sketched up on a napkin years ago was based on a prescription label. So it all played together. It was a prescription label for alcohol from Prohibition. And um, it forced me to learn how to use uh, Adobe Illustrator in the process. <laughs> and the idea behind the brand really started as how do we take these parts and make it better than the individual parts? Um, how do we also be as uh, transparent as possible? So that's something that's really important to us is showcasing and sharing everything that we, we, we can about our brand. So if you ask me any question um, other than one or two things where I might have an NDA, which is pretty rare and they do happen every once in a while, um, I'll, I'm happy to share exactly what we're doing when it comes down to the blending, how I'm processing this, what type of barrels I'm using, um, you name it. In fact, we discuss a lot of that on our, our website as well in infographics because my processing methods are a little bit out there. <laughs> um, and each product is a little different from each other as far as how they're produced too. 
Yeah, and, and infographics are always super helpful yeah. for visual learners. Um, and yeah, kind I'm, of a, I'm one of them. So. <laughs> in the brief moments that we've been talking, in under 10 minutes, um, you, you've communicated that um, you have been designer, you have been Blender, you've been Adobe Illustrator, um, brand rep, chief communicator, chief naming officer. Um, and, and this is often the case with many what would be considered startups, right? Because you guys are effectively a startup. Yeah. Um, when you began this in 2017, is this the future you imagined or was this just going to be like a, a pet side project to kind of explore creativity? This is a pet side project to create uh, or explore creativity, really. Um, I think a lot of it was because we were working on other projects that were large scale. I mean, national distribution kind of stuff. And frankly, it's all, you know, um, high volume, low margin, not particularly exciting. And I, I did come from the craft distilling world. Uh, I'm not classically trained in distillation by any means. I'm pretty much self-taught, but I've been able to glean and learn information from amazing people in the industry that um, are, you know, master blunders. Um, from several different countries, which is which is part of the adventure I wanted to go on. And I think some of it was um, uh, the other founders, my accountant, for example, our CFO and and uh, head of sales realized that I needed to be challenged uh, and I needed to be able to be able to create products. Otherwise, my life would get really boring quickly making the same, you know, same few vodkas or gins or silver rums over and over again in mass. Um, so this was kind of an exercise. Um, to keep us all interested and something we were curious about. And we loved drinking um, uh, bourbons and rums uh, and, and brandies um, uh, along the way. So we thought, heck yeah, let's give this a try. Let's figure out what we can do and see if uh, we've see if we've got the gumption to, to produce a quality product um, in particular, uh, maybe even have the opportunity to, to change the way people perceive some of these kind of things like blending or finishing, which when we started was a far uh maybe dirtier word <laughs> um than it is now there's a lot more acceptance for it now but even 2017 there's very few companies that are uh you know doing finishing and uh now there's quite a few um and uh we we like to we believe we're we're some of those one of those top companies doing finishing at the moment in the country i i would i would attend to, I would tend to to agree with that. I mean, um, you know, I've had some wonderful conversations with either craft or non-distilling producers mm -hmm. um, where this blending, sourcing, finishing conversation is coming up where, um, you know, the, the heritage brands had participated in blending and sourcing, um, but in a very different relationship. A heritage mm -hmm. brand blends with the intent to create a, a, an amalgamous um, taste profile, right? Yep. We want uniformity through and through. And, um, they participated in sourcing simply because they would often have things that don't fit their profile that they needed to get rid of. So they were selling them, but then they were putting them behind NDPs and not letting anyone know where it came from because you don't want to market off of the brand or whatever. So they've been participating in this for a while, just not in the same way. And and I think the, the fun thing is seeing um, NDPs sort of disrupt the marketplace and take things that would have been negatively connotized five years ago and move yeah. them into the forefront, right? Like you, you're saying, we are going to lead with our blending and sourcing and our blending's intent is to create limited time offerings or novel expressions. And our finishing is to be able to provide some unique flavor profiles that you can't get out of corn, rye, wheat, barley, and oak, right? Like you got to get some other thing that comes into play. And um, the, the, the pharmacist child, like I was the child of a pharmacist in me, super appreciates the, the apothecary style labels. The only thing I would add is that you probably need to include the script 
of writing to be illegible because you're not supposed <laughs> to be able to read them ever, right? Like it, it, which I know TTB probably says, no, nah, you shouldn't do that. But if, if, you're, if it's a real prescription label, it's unreadable. Absolutely. I, I believe it. <laughs> That's actually really funny. Um, and John, thank you for saying all that. That seriously, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, like I said, I'm a little uh, inarticulate today, to be honest. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's not like but, you don't have to do this over and over again, right? Like it, it, it all becomes <laughs> sort of the this, this, this same thing. But uh, kind of going back to this idea of of blending, you know, you guys Distiller's Way was was developing other people's spirits, and they weren't necessarily in the brown spirits world. Um, what what put you in a position to to enable you as a master blender or a blender? I, you know, maybe you're not. I don't think you called yourself master blender. I think you called you chief, chief blender or whatever it is. Yeah, well, whatever I the term it. is, what is it? Well, sorry, say that again. Say what, whatever the term is. Like, what was the thing that put you in a position to be that role? Oh well, so so I guess here's the thing. Um, we're like I said, we're pretty west coast in a lot of ways. Um, and what I mean is, yes, we are a total startup. Um, I was found when I was. 22 years old um, by uh, some of our investors and uh, I, they must have liked what I said to them. And I'm sure it was quite humorous at the time, to be honest with you. And I was running a small distillery and I did really well with the products I was making. Um, for example, I won a, a couple large competitions for best gin uh, internationally. Um, so obviously I had some capability to understand how profiles function and they decided to pick me over all the other options that they probably um, looked at and probably people that have been in the industry for a long time said this kid's got a chance like i think this kid's gonna go somewhere so they trusted me and my palate to be able to do produce products for um well large clients which uh, i remember when i first started this company somebody asked me they said do you feel like you're appropriate you know like uh, your age and uh, knowledge is it appropriate for you to do this and i said i have no idea i had no clue um, but you know what? I'm one of those people who's like ridiculously determined, even maybe to a, a level that's uh, <laughs> maybe a little, uh, uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of the word here. Um, but maybe too far sometimes. Uh, but I like, I don't like saying no to anything. Um, and ultimately, I think over time, I've been able to prove that I've done well um, with the products that we produced. And therefore, I've just kind of adapted to that, that title. I mean, it is totally a self proclaimed title. In fact, I refuse to use the word master. For a long time because i always feel like usually you have to learn from somebody in a very classical sense you have to learn from a group of you know people uh mentors all these kind of things and and maybe do this for 20 years of your life or whatnot i mean there are mm -hmm. there are master stillers that don't get that title that don't get that title for 20 or 30 years maybe not until they're almost about ready to retire to be honest uh, when you're looking in some european operations and um, well, the funny thing is on my business card, it would say head blender and the problem that started happening over and over again is people are like, well, what the heck's a head blender or who's the real master blender behind all this? And, oh, who did you work for before you took over? Did they fire that person? I'm like, no, it's literally been me the entire time, um, from the get go. Like I concepted these products. I developed these products. I, I do it here. This is my lab. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and the barrels are literally on the other side of the wall. Um, so I just mm -hmm. decided to just run with it because everybody kept telling me I should just stick with master. Um, uh, as far as I know, there's nothing in particular that says you can or can't be. So it is self-proclaimed, but I think I've got some things to back that statement a little bit now. I felt more comfortable yeah, and, this year. <laughs> yeah, it, 
honestly, sometimes, you know, ignorant of tra- ignorance of tradition can be a feature, right? And, you know, and there is no clarification of what a master blender is, at least not in the United States. There's far more tradition right. in, in, in England and, and in Japan and other places where blending has not been such a dirty word. And so, um, you know, I, to that end, for the people who, you know, say, oh, there's not enough reverence in adopting the master blender. I mean, if you'd have called somebody a blender, 15 years ago, it would have been borderline an insult, right? Because yeah. we're not supposed to talk about blending. And so it's, there's a, there's a counterculture portion to it. It, it, it feels, um, it feels appropriate, but you, you said you, you came from a distillery where you're producing gin. Like, how did you get into the spirits industry? Like how do you as a 22 year old end up in a gin distillery? Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, I don't know if any, if you've ever read Malcolm Gladwell's, uh, outliers book, I, <laughs> it's a little bit of time and right time, right place. And, and, and ask the right questions. Um, so this was about 2012 and I'd already had a, a pretty keen interest in distillation and alcohol sciences. Um, when I was quite young, in fact, I had my own root beer like line when I was a kid, which is kind of funny. So I felt like I was already, and my dog's name was whiskey. So let's be honest, <laughs> I was a little destined for the industry. I kind of feel like and my last name's Parker. So there's a funny, there's a, there's a funny ode to it too, that people always give me, uh, just, you know, crap about from time to time. <laughs> we almost, we almost named one of the products, uh, Parker's, uh, uh, was it Parker's cut or something like that? One time we're like, yeah, we're going to get a cease and desist for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you definitely will at least get a false cease and desist. Maybe they're not going to pursue it too super deeply, but they'll send one out just to see right. if it's enough to scare you. Exactly. And, 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 and like I said, nothing bad about that. There's a reason why I called it blender's cut. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyways, I, you know, I, I was young and I had this really uh, keen interest in, in learning distillation sciences because it was the next step. I learned a fair amount about um, uh, beer, wine and liqueurs, just mostly on a, a, a small like um, uh, cottage scale with my family. Right. We were really into those kind of things. We grew a lot of our own fruits. Uh, we made our own liqueurs. Um, it's just part of what I did as a kid. Um, and I wanted to understand the distillation side, but it's nothing, we didn't do any of that, right? We'd, you know, any liqueurs, we'd go and buy brandy or something from the store and then macerate with our fruit and sugar. And I was like, I want to understand how to make brandy. That's the next logical step. So I started researching it and uh, understanding how that all works. And, uh, let's just say, uh, when I turned 21, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I needed a job while I was in university and, uh, uh, my mom encouraged me to go apply to a distillery that was opening up. And this was, like I said, 2012. So this was an early ish point in time for the craft distilling industry. Um, uh, I think Washington had upwards of 160 or so craft distilleries at its peak. Um, but when I started, we were the um, seventh uh, licensed distillery in Washington state. And I think the third or fourth operating at the time. And um, it was uh, literally right down the street from my university um, and it was a farm. So full on orchard, so something I was familiar with um, that was processing apples into brandy, vodka and gin. And when I applied, they were still building the place. So I kind of figured, oh, well, I could learn from somebody, right? This would be a kind of a fun thing to do in college. Maybe I'd enjoy doing this as a career path. I don't know yet. And they hired me and I figured they knew a lot about distillation. Well, it turns out that wasn't the case. Um, <laughs> they were an older couple that, um, took a chance on a 21 year old running their distillery and said, here's the keys. These are gorgeous Vendome stills for the record. I think they were the only ones in Washington state at the time. And um, uh, I got to basically figure out what I was doing there. Um, And it, it, you know, it's still a very small brand. It never went big or anything like that. It's just a family operation with a farm. And um, I did really well there. Uh, And it was kind of fun. I basically got to explore the creativity that I wanted to um, win some great awards and, uh, 
have this being offered to me uh, when I was 20. So I was 24 when we started the company and uh, 22 when I met the people that uh, invited me in on this operation. Um, so I, I guess just a stroke of luck. And I got to meet a lot of cool people. I mean, there was a lot less people in this industry definitely when I was 21 versus now. So that was, gosh, uh, 11 years, almost 12 years ago. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think you get to call it a stroke of luck. And I'm, I'm going to I'm going to maybe pin you down a little bit here because you said do. as a kid, you had a root beer line and then yeah. your family went to liqueurs and growing your own things. And um, instead of just accepting the process, you tried to vertically vertically integrate your family. Right. Like you're yeah, like, we like to do this. How do, I, <laughs> how do I do this? And then you stepped out as um, a college age student. And instead of being overwhelmed by the idea of having to learn to distill on your own, you're just like, nah, we'll figure this out. Like this is startup mentality, right? Yeah. This is absolute um, creative startup mentality. And so it sounds like the, the people who are, you know, a distiller's way identifying you identified that mentality. And so that's not luck. That's part of your inherent being and, you know, intellectual curiosity, whatever you want to call it. So uh, maybe, maybe it's not luck. Maybe, it, maybe it is destiny. Maybe it's just who you are, right? Like that's um, a really, that's an interesting bit of information, right? Whenever, whenever I ask the question, you're like, how, how did you get into spirits? You, you don't ever get the same answer. And that may be one of the most unique ones I've, I've gotten oh. so far. Oh, that's uh, cool. Very rare. Start with a kid with a root beer line. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I, I made it incredibly carbonated, so you'd burp a lot if you can imagine. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. uh, Willy Wonka, you know, when you're in the, <laughs> I forget what it's called, when you're drinking the soda. Um, that was kind of the drink, yeah. I mean, I pull a lot of inspiration from different different things. Let me tell you. I mean, every single mm -hmm. one of the blends for Doc Swinson's, all the LTOs, every part of it is from something else. This is nothing. It's not that it's not new. It's new in a lot of ways, but ultimately, this is from historical processing methods uh, that are primarily out of Europe that I'm adapting and applying to American whiskey. That's the most basic way to describe my formula is how mm -hmm. do we create, you know, rum or rye whiskey finish in rum cast? Well, we could just put rye whiskey in rum cast and dump it out and call it a day, or we could build a whole Solera system, age several different rums ourselves, blend them together, create casks out of that, and then build a Solera system with over 150 barrels in it. It's insane a little bit. But it's amazing. And the, the results are, are proven over and over again, um, uh, you know, for example. And then the way I produce triple cask, my, one of my other Coraline products, is done completely differently from Solera method, the rye whiskey finished in rum casks. So they don't all, it's not all the same whiskey put in different types of barrels and then bottled. Each one has a different path to get to that bottle. And mm -hmm. I think that's, that's through... Uh, maybe a little bit of ins insanity, um, so love for history, um, also being uh, you know a little bit fearless when it comes to uh, coming up with new processes. But there's these a lot of this stuff has been around for hundreds of years. These methods, and there's a reason why they're still around. So recognizing that and paying uh, homage, I think, to these other uh, adjacent industries, whether it's wine or balsamic vinegar or or you name it, um, is is a, is such a fascinating dive into history in processing and food processing, and it's it's so true how much of an impact it has on the end product. And American whiskey, I don't think has really had that opportunity to shine in that way. And I think that was mm -hmm. something that was so fascinating to to me. And in in the reality, I, I could be a blender that just dumps barrels together and calls it good. I do that, but I do it with a lot of intentionality. Um, and there's other people obviously doing that. Too. I'm not saying I'm the only one by any means. Yeah. Um, it's clear, um, but you know, there's there's a lot of cases where that that does happen, and sometimes you're good. It's good. Sometimes it's not. 
Um, uh, it's kind of funny going back to the idea of uh, a title of a master. I think the one thing that would truly mark you as a master is consistency. Um, that is the hardest thing to achieve, um, especially on a small scale. If you could dump a 10,000 barrels together every time, eh, it's probably going to taste about the darn same. <laughs> but if you can do it on a small scale and keep consistency between batch releases, I think that is a, is kind of a mark of a master. And that's something that, I'll be honest, I still think I'm, I'm really trying to work on, uh, which is why I'm going to lean a little bit more on the unique batch releases, you know, because consistency is difficult. And my batches, the largest batch I produce is about 34 to 40 barrels maximum. Um, that's our session blend. Everything else is significantly under that. It might only be two or three barrels at a time. Yeah. And, you know, it, you mentioned, you know, there hasn't been maybe nearly as much exploration in American whiskey, but American whiskey is still relatively young. I mean, if we think about yeah. the, the age of this nation in comparison to the rest of the world, <laughs> like it, it makes a lot of sense that, that it's not there. Um, but you you have some very unique products in the marketplace and, and you mentioned earlier um, that you're tasked with conceptualizing products. And so what, what does that look like? What is the, the process for Jesse conceptualizing a new product or product line? It, it honestly, it, there's a couple different ways that I do that, but more often than not, it's understanding what inputs I have available to me. So that might be the relationships that I have to bring in finished casts from overseas. I, I do the best that I can in most cases to work directly with producers of casts and bring them over myself in, in containers. So I know where I'm getting them from and understand what was in them beforehand as best as I can. That's not always the case. Um, it's, uh, you know, which whiskeys I have available uh, in which warehouses, whether my own or in Indiana or Kentucky, for example, at what ages, which mash bills I have available. So I basically compile all these inputs in my head and I think about them. Um, and I also understand what those finished casts generally taste like. I know what Pinot de Chirant generally tastes like. I know what, you know, uh, um, peated scotch generally tastes like, this type of rum, et cetera, you name it, right? And just like I think a, a lot of chefs might agree with this statement, um, or anybody that likes cooking, honestly, is you start thinking about these different flavor profiles and how they layer on top of each other and will affect the overall outcome of the dish or the bottle in this case. And that's kind of more or less the approach. Most of it's done mentally. I think about it. I think about it. And then what I'll start to do is once I say, oh, you know what? I think these three items might go really well together. Um, what I'll do is I'll make a bench top sample. So I'll pull some whiskeys. I've got whiskeys. There's dozens of shelves over on these walls, and there's full of different batches of um, every single thing I've ever dumped in into a grand scale or a small scale. And I'll pull from those. I'll say, I have some of this available, some of that available. And then what I'll do is I'll, for example, if I know I want to do a finish that I've never done before, let's just say it's whatever, Amarone or something like that. I'll get some Amarone from hopefully the producer I'm getting the barrels from. Or sometimes I just walk down the street and go pick up a bottle from a, a wine shop. And what I'll do is I'll just rinse the glass with it. And then I put some of this whiskey in there, hang out with it for a little bit. Um, I'll you know taste it um, and I'll taste it throughout the day. And then I'll save some of it aside and I'll do it again and again and again over the course of maybe a couple of weeks to decide if that's the direction I want to go. Um, it, once again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's simple in some ways and really complex in others. Um, but ultimately the majority of the, 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 the conceptualizing is just done. It's done in my head. Uh, as silly as it sounds, a lot of it comes in like a dream and oftentimes it's a daydream staring into like wonderland, you know, and I'm like, oh, this, these two flavors will be great. Or sometimes I'll just know it. I'll smell it. It's almost like that, uh, Ratatouille movie, you know, where he smells the flavors and it's like wisping around yeah. in colors. Um, that, that, that's a real thing, uh, for me at least. And I, I'm sure I can, uh, other people can contest to that too. Um, I said, ask a chef. 
uh, how do they come up with a cool, you know, recipe, you know, it's, it's in, mm -hmm. and I think you have to have your intention of what you want to see out of it in the end. That's important. So what is your end goal with it? It might not always be perfect, like what you're um, conceptualizing, but sometimes it's better. Um, and once again, understand your inputs, coming up with an end goal, and then trying to fill in the gaps in between with those inputs um, and taking your time with it. I tell you, I spend a lot of time blending one project at the time. Um, and you have to revisit it in different situations. You know, my mood in the morning might affect how I taste something, what I've eaten, have I exercised, am I sleepy? You know, all those different things affect that. So you have to do it over and over again um, in order to, uh, I feel you have to do it over and over again to feel confident about the product you're putting in, in the bottle. And in some cases, you know, there's products that I, I conceptualize and I say, nope, I'm not going to put this in the bottle. It's not worth it. I don't want to, I want this associated with my brand in this way. So yeah, it's probably it, winded, but <laughs> no, 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 it's, it's perfect. I mean, you're, you're communicating a, um, a super creative process, but that requires revalidation, right? You, you got to make sure that it, that it fits regardless. And you're trying to create a situation where the, the sum of the parts is greater than the individual pieces, right? You, you want them to play together. You want them to layer, you want to do all of these things. And, and, and you've said that, you know, what everyone is tasting out of a bottle is a reflection of your mood, your thought mm -hmm. process, um, which is super intentional, but like mentally, what does it, what is required of you to get in the right frame of mind to do that? So I don't know if I'll answer this, particularly well here but to get myself in the mindset it's kind of funny i try and set out like a schedule of what i'm going to taste stuff right I, I know lots of people that do this so like every morning between 7 and 9 a.m i don't drink coffee and i go to you know and maybe not every morning but three times a week or whatever i go and taste this i've tried doing a lot of that um that's not quite my creative process um i'm pretty intentional about trying stuff in the morning the evening the afternoon maybe with friends without friends in a silent situation with music there's different things i'll do but more often than not i just have to feel a mood um, so I don't usually plan my blend sessions. I try and sit down and say this month, I need to achieve this blend. And as I'm working throughout the day on mostly, you know, design stuff or paperwork or whatnot, or rolling some barrels around, um, or doing interviews, um, it's usually some point in time in the afternoon, I just get this peak of interest of getting away from my office and my desk and I go and wander around and I, I taste my barrels and it puts me in just a really great mood. And that's part of the first steps in developing the next blend. Um, so more often than not, it's how am I feeling in that moment and not forcing it? I, I, that's the easiest way to maybe say it. Every time I've ever forced trying to make a blend, I could make a good product. I've done that um, on many occasions, especially a lot of you know, spiced rums over the years. <laughs> but, um, uh, I just don't, I don't think it quite fits the brand identity oftentimes that I'm looking for with Doc Swinson's. And so therefore I've had to trust my gut and um, uh, understand where I'm coming from in the moment and say, this is what I'm ready to do. This is what I'm going to play with. And some days I'll go into the office and say, I'm going to work on this, you know, this tawny port finished bourbon, but you know what I end up creating something completely different. You know, I, I ended up working with this, uh, you know, uh, XP scotch cast and this rum cast. I said, well, this is, this is my wall moment. Like it all of a sudden popped out of nowhere. And that happens actually fairly often. Like I said, I can sit down. If you said, Jesse, I need you to blend me this product, I can do it. It's, it's not that mm -hmm. particularly difficult. But if I'm looking for something that I think I really want to put my my name on um, and have full creativity behind that and responsibility behind that, uh, I like having a little bit more of an open process to it and taking time with it. 
it just depends on the situation. Yeah. And I, I like what you said in there and, and, and this is going to be maybe a rewording or a paraphrasing of it, but, um, you put yourself in what effectively could be considered or at least a moderate or a good mood before you start the blend. And, um, and the reason that sort of connected with my brain is I think about specifically the types of things that you're doing and, and several NDP, NDPs are doing, you know, mass produced whiskey is, you know, a consumptive based product, but a lot of these are very community mood or moment enhancers. Right. And so yep. you go in with the excitement to try something or you go in thinking, man, today was rough, but I just want to have something really nice. And so you're hoping to lift your mood. And so maybe part of the magic is, is putting yourself in a position to, to be receptive to that. You're building a flavor profile that matches that particular moment for, for a person. Cause um, honestly, I don't know too many people who have ever been like, you know what? I'm having a terrible day and want to continue this terrible day by drinking a fantastic whiskey, right? It, it doesn't go that way. They, they may, they may drink something and go a whole other route, but sure. most of these are, you know, kind of, um, mood builders, you know, I, I guess maybe that's the wrong way. Maybe we're using these to enhance our mood. I don't know. Um, but <laughs> well, I get what you're, kind of, what you're saying. St yeah, staying in the, the idea of building a blend or a finish or whatever, um, do you have one that you've done in the last few years that have just been like your favorite? Like it can be like picking a favorite child, but we're gonna make you pick a favorite child today. I, I yeah, I don't normally, I don't, I don't like picking favorite children, but you know, so part of the goal in every single blend I do is uh, with Doc Swinson's LTO line, so the white labels, right? So the black labels for the record are our core line. Those are items you should be able to find uh, hopefully locally wherever you live all the time, right? Uh, and we have four of those products. Uh, oh, yeah, four of those products at the moment. And all the white labels are more, they're limited releases. Um, now I may make the same kind of finish over and over again, but it will likely be a little different because I found different casks or maybe they aged a little longer or, or whatnot. And I have to say that the major thing that I always go into when I'm blending these is how can I best what I did last? That is my goal when it comes to LTOs. Can I best it every single, you know, every time or at least make something equal to uh, the last previous release or so. And I have to say, I think over the last year or so, as far as picking some favorites, um, for different maybe reasons, can I pick more than one? Sure. I'll tell you a reason why. Okay. Um, my Muscatel de Setu Bell finish, a Muscatel finish bourbon that I put out this last release has been one of my favorites to go back to over and over again. I think it mm -hmm. highlights the right balance between the bourbon, the finishing cask, the sweetness, and there's no choppy gaps anywhere in that whiskey. And it's also a fairly high proof. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's 105.8 or 106.8 proof. Um, and it's something that you can just keep going back to. It reminds me of a really nice dessert pour, uh, like a uh, fortified wine. Now it's it's still a bourbon, but it reminds me of the same sensation I would get from a really nice tawny port or a really nice muscatel or, or whatever, just the sensation, not the flavors. It's a little different. Um, that's been one of my favorites as of recently. Um, another one that I think is really just fun because it was a little more harebrained was I released a product um, at the end of the year here called Reefer Madness. <laughs> um, a little ode to a, a song of my childhood that I loved a lot. Um, making fun of the movie. Anyways, um, I'm from Washington after all. <laughs> um, uh, it was... 
rye whiskey finished in rum casks. So it's our Solera method that was also additionally finished in peated scotch quarter casks. And it's a really fascinating time between sweet, smoky, and spicy. And it does it in such a gorgeous way that just keeps evolving and evolving. Every time I go and taste it, it's literally changing the profiles. And uh, I think that's a little bit more synonymous with triple cast kind of products um, because there's a lot going on in there. But it did it in such a gradual way um, that I, I kind of keep going back to it. So I, without picking my, my children, those are, those are some ones I found recently that I've, I've gravitated towards the most. And I like it. it I like that you're viewing yourself as, you know, the, the, the most serious competition you have is the thing that you did right before that, right? Like you're continually yeah. trying to best yourself. And, um, I think that leads to some, some fantastic things, but, um, you minute, you mentioned, uh, before we really started that this is the time of the year, um, where you're doing a lot of your blending for LTOs. Is there anything that you can share that's happening in 2024, um, as far as anything unique that's going on so far? Absolutely. So there's a few things we're kind of opening up with. One, we released our session blend, um, which is our, our core line. Um, it's our uh, it's a, it's our lowest proof product that we release. It's 90 proof. It's a blend of two whiskeys. Um, everything we do here is usually a blend of two whiskeys or and finished or one whiskey that's been finished. So nothing just other than single barrels. Um, and session blend was a, a unique way. It's the first time I've ever actually blended a whiskey with intention for cocktail bars, to be honest. It's the first time somebody's asked me to do that and to hit a price point. And it's, a, it's, a, it's about half the price of our other bottles, almost on average, with still a five-year age statement on it. So depending on what state you're in, it should be below $40. Um, so one, we're going to really focus on kind of putting that more into the market to expand the brand. But as far as really unique releases, I'm doing more uh, multi-cask finishes. Um, for example, I'm also doing a, one release that will probably come out here in the next two months. Actually, it will come out in the next two months. That's my goal this week is to finish this blend. Is a rye whiskey finished in rum. Once again, it's Solera Method. That's also been finished in these tawny port casts that I was able to get. And they're about 40-year-old tawny ports. Um, and another thing about Doc Swinson that's really interesting is I primarily focus on large format cask aging. So most of my casks are over 300 liters, um, the majority of them being between five and 600 liters in size, uh, which has a profound difference on the end uh, effect of the spirit. Once again, the goal is to make bourbon or rye whiskey shine, not the finished cast. The finished cast is the seasoning. And that's, mm -hmm. that's, that's what I mean by in line with my brand is I try not to overdo my finishes in a way that doesn't align with Doc Swinson's. Um, and uh, I think that one's going to be really fun. I'm still trying to figure a name for that one, to be honest. I was thinking of calling it Dad's Mixtapes. <laughs> but I don't know. Um, so if you have any ideas, throw them out. Um, Naming is the hardest thing. Uh, I'm, I'm out. I don't, I don't name things. There's prob I probably have two or 300 names on a list. And it's so hard just picking the one that fits the, fits the bill. Um, it has to come naturally, you know? Uh, mm. So that'll be fun. So that's rye whiskey finished in um, rum and tawny port casks. Um, I've got a white port coming out uh, finished that I'm really excited about. White ports are a little bit harder mm -hmm. to find and most people aren't familiar with them. Um, they're absolutely excellent. They're a little bit more reminiscent of kind of like a vino verde or uh, something a little more spring springtime wine for it. And it just goes so beautifully with whiskey, American whiskey in particular. Um, uh, gosh, what else? Um, I've got some, oh, I just ended up getting in like within the last couple of weeks, these uh, 
uh, I've been working with this uh, distillery in France, uh, Remy Landy, to bring in these casks that they're like cousins owned. Um, and they're these Pinot de Charente casks. And I love Pinot de Charente. It's one of my favorite things on the planet. Um, and uh, these are 23 plus year old Pinot de Charente casks. I mean, the Pinot de Charente that was in them was this old, which is very rare. Mm -hmm. Most of the time it's bottled under five years old. Um, uh, and I have a, a, like half a container worth of them. And these are all uh, 350 to 420 uh, liter casks. And they're literally so syrupy. I got them. We opened some up the other day. And they're all, you know, they're still wet, which is the best part. Um, mm -hmm. So we can get like a bottle out of each cask kind of thing. <laughs> but these were so <laughs> syrupy and delicious tasting. And they just smell magical. They almost have that like sense of rancio that you get out of really old cognacs, which mm -hmm. you don't again normally find in a in Pinot de Charente typically um as well as uh some 17 to 23 year old uh cognac and armagnac casks so uh, this has been a fun container to bring in we're just unloading now so I'm hoping to release some of these in fall uh, mm -hmm. but you know we, we got a lot of other projects going on in the back um so I just, just you said two to... of the magic words for me. I, I've heard white port now three times for spring summer fall releases from different brands um, and then Armagnac, which I think is, uh, I think that in a world where American whiskey potentially declines in consumption and purchase habits, I think Armagnac is positioned to kind of slide in there because you're going to have people looking for advanced age statements at potentially decreased price ranges. And you can do that with yep. Armagnac right now, 10 years, <laughs> yeah. five years from now, probably not so much. Um <laughs> You know, it's 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 gonna go away, and I gotta stop talking about it because then somebody's gonna you know like, oh, we should all go buy this. All eight people that are gonna ever live to, listen to this. But you, you mentioned that you're using um, larger format casks, and so um, this is how my brain works: is I'm looking at this like you're having to create effectively a micro blend and then finish it right because you're having to put more than one whiskey barrel in these larger casks. Yes. How, how does how did how? how that's all i know that's the question i have like how like are, are you actually making a micro blend or um you just hoping uh, <laughs> uh sorry you mean by micro blend meaning my bench top sampling where i'm like okay. i mean i mean like if you're gonna stick these two you know barrels of whiskey together that are not okay. going to be identical and stick them in the finishing cask how do you make that bet that these are going to play well together well. and then play well together with the finish Gotcha. Okay, just making sure I got that down right. Yeah. So it's 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 tasting barrels along the whole path. So for example, we we maintain about three hundred to six hundred barrels in our warehouse in the back of bourbon. That's been a minimum age five years, uh, and this and rye as well. Same thing. Age minimum five years, upwards of eight years. And what I'll do is I'll, I periodically go through and I taste and I catalog these casks. It's a pretty labor intensive process. Um, sometimes and I have, I also have an assistant now, which has been amazing. He, he's got an amazing palate and he's able to help set up a lot of this up for me. Um, and I go through and I catalog each barrel. Some barrels, uh, generally have, uh, or I should say all barrels generally have a couple key profiles that I'm looking for. So you have to kind of like, you know, take the extreme complexity out of it and say, um, this one's spicy, this one's woody, this one's sweet. You know, this is just for example. Um, mm -hmm. and this one's funky. This one doesn't even taste like bourbon. That happens sometimes, you know, uh, every once in a while I'll get one that tastes like a tequila. And I'm like, where did this barrel come from? <laughs> um, <laughs> it really only happened once. And it was the most humorously strange thing I've ever encountered. Um, mm -hmm. 
And what I'll do is I'll categorize them into general my general categories. And I have samples of groups of these barrels that have been dumped from past times. I'll say, here's a bunch of spicy ones. Here's a bunch of sweet ones. Here's a bunch of woody ones. And that's the predominant characteristic in there. And what I'll do is I'll blend those together in ratios that I think will go well with that finishing cask. And then I know mm -hmm. that in the future, I think, okay, this much percent of this, 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 and that. You know, think of your blending pyramid if you've, if you've ever seen one or whatever. Like, here's your top notes. Here's your base product. Then what I do is I go look at a giant Excel sheet and say, what do I have available to me? And I have to figure out how to actually make that 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 matrix work mm -hmm. out so we can actually make something um, and afford to make it. That's the other thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then I'll say, okay, here's my small sample of the finished cast type profile that I'm working with, Pinot de Chirant, for example. Here's the uh, a blend of uh, my base blend that I want to work with of X amount of each one of these profiles. You put it in that glass, you swirl it around, you let it sit for a second, you go, you taste it, you taste it, you say, okay, mm, the wood's poking too, 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 too through or through this too much. So maybe we dial that back a bit. Um, so once again, it's it's breaking into parts that are you know consumable in a in a mm -hmm. I guess a lack of a better term to say you know how do you eat an elephant right that old saying one bite at a time. Break it into parts that are logical. You move forward with that, and you adjust based on those profiles. So we are very hands-on with our process. Um, I check on all my casts. In general, I have an idea. For example, if this mash bill was all made in the same period of time and stored in the same warehouse, those barrels are going to be more similar. Now they're different. Once again, you get outliers. They're barrels. They were trees, multiple trees at once, and they taste <laughs> completely different. Um, so I, I think that's more or less like the the really complex way. Uh, but describing how I go through that process. Um, mm -hmm. It's just checking it. And then what we'll do is we'll do a master dump of those barrels, and then I check those profiles. And I keep a liter of every single dump I've ever done. And they're all tagged and marked, so they're all associated mm -hmm. with final products too. So I can always trace back and say, oh, this is what that profile tastes like. And then every once in a while, we get a group of barrels that are a little out there. And guess what? We dump those together and say, well, how can we put this in the system? And oftentimes, that goes to a really fun finishing cast. And those are some of my favorite finishes because you're like, oh, mm -hmm. that did not fit the typical profile. Back to what you're saying about large distilleries selling off things that don't fit. This is what we do as NDPs. This is what mm -hmm. we do as blenders. We find homes for them. We don't dump them down the drain. Right. Kind of, um, kind of criminal. So, <laughs> so uh, I guess... I'm, I'm I'm imagining this process. You you find your ratios. You you do your dump to go into the finishing cask, and there's um, potentially remainders of all of the barrels that you use to create that master blend. Do those then become part of your um, standard profile uh, or standard offerings that you normally have? You try to blend those into that, or yes, um, you know, do you, or do you just have this like? big ass cask no. of all the extra leavings and it's a giant infinity blend you know it's kind of funny i uh, going back to what we were talking about earlier um i i learned a lot from a lot of distillers and master blenders from from different places around the world and these are sometimes just phone calls or a day hanging out with them nothing nothing really intense i didn't go to school for this right mm -hmm. um but i've learned a lot and they all have different methods and how they process this and i have heard people say oh these ones aren't good so we just chuck the excess over here and we'll find a home for them later um, that's part of the fun in being a blender is finding homes for them sooner than later, because in the end, yeah. we're a teeny company. Uh, all this costs a lot of money to do. Um, mm -hmm. So the goal is to leave, you know, leave no parts behind, so to speak, you know, and, and always finding homes for them. And that is part of the beauty and the flexibility behind blending. And I think that's a big part of my job and how I challenge myself and the expectations that should be 
frankly, placed on blenders to some degree is finding quality homes to produce these quality products. And there's different ways to do that. Yes, you can basically, you know, the solution is dilution. Yeah, you can add some of these odd barrels out to larger batches and there's a good chance it's not going to affect the overall profile with any profound differences that really anybody's really going to pick up on. A GC might, a super taster might or something like that, but overall nobody's going to notice. That is a good source or a good way to put some product in there um, without changing that identity. Um, and then, like I said, the benefit of uh, being part of the, 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 the brand developer behind Doc Swinson's is I got to say, I've got these three casts over here. I don't have enough. I'm probably never going to do this particular finish again because it's unlikely I'll get these barrels again. That's where some of those pieces often can go because there's no expectations based upon uh, like previous releases um, in the marketplace. So I could say this one's going to be truly unique over here because it's a set of these barrels that just didn't fit the bill or parts of barrels that didn't fit the bill for something else. It, it's a big, it's a big spider web. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it sounds like it's just a management nightmare is what it, it becomes. Like you, you're going to find a home for it eventually. Yeah. Um, yeah. You've got multiple paths to get there, but you still sort of have to keep up with it. Um, so how do, how do you identify or what do you look for to try to come up with a new cask idea? Like, so, you know, some, is it you, you, you taste a spirit and you then chase down the casks or is it um, you have a barrel and he says, I have 50 of these barrels. Uh, it's a little bit of both, honestly. Um, like I said, a lot, a lot of what we do is, is working with, with, you know, five to eight year old uh, bourbon and rye whiskey, 98% um, of it or more. Um, most everything releases MGP. Occasionally I get some other stuff thrown in the mix for fun. Um, and so it's, it's one, it's, these are the whiskeys I have to work with. I often mm -hmm. don't buy um, one-offs. Sometimes I will like that 15 year, for example, or stuff I've bought out of Tennessee in the past. Like I will buy off one-offs cause they sound really fun or they're really exciting. But most of the time it's, here's my bases. What can I do with them? This is my, this is my, this is my refrigerator. How many times can I open it? I still have the same things. Now there's a lot of variety in there. Mash bills do make a big difference. Um, maturation makes an even bigger difference of course and then what it is is when it comes to finding the finishing cast for example um i mean i have a laundry list of finishing casts that i've wanted to work with and as they come up on the market whether they're from brokers uh various uh suppliers i get to work with so directly from the you know distillery or winery um uh you know i built relationships with these people over the last few years and a lot of them will say hey Jesse, you don't mind taking on five really strange barrels. You know, would you be interested in these? Hey, yeah. I've got a container of these. Would you like to tag on some barrels with that? Um, that's some of the, I think the, the, the best parts of my job is working with people that have this kind of passion for different things and knowing that I too share that passion with them. So they'll say, Hey, you know, I've got a person in, 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 in France. That's like this person emptied out their old cellar cause they inherited it. They don't want these casts anymore. Are you interested? And that's where I get to say, mm, yes or no. Do I have room for this in the book or not? Um, so more often than not, uh, it's a little bit of everything. Um, the whiskeys are usually pretty standard on my end. And then as far as the finished cast goes, it's it's kind of what comes my way. Or, or I hunt for them too. Don't get me wrong. I poke around and I, I email and try and find people through the woodwork of the industry to get to certain cast types. Um, you know, maybe it's a certain producer in Spain or something that I want to work with. Um, but more often than not, it's, it's, it's I only get what I'm going to get. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, um, you can't I do force somebody to give you a barrel. 
No, no. And in the end, I, I do reject a lot of opportunities for uh, finishing casks um, because some of it too is like, it's not whatever just shows up on the, on the truck. I'm really particular about what I want to find. So if yeah. I know, for example, you know, this was, this was a finishing cast that was used in, in a, whatever, a, a Bordeaux um, for two years and then brought to Portugal to age something for six months. I might say, nah, that's probably not what I'm looking for. I want more of that, uh, you know, that port or Muscatel finish uh, profile than the Bordeaux finish profile. So it, it just depends on what, what comes my way, you know? Yeah. Um, and we're, we're nearing in on time and, and I hate to do this cause I have just more questions, just more and more questions. We can always um, have a follow-up one anytime you want. Just let me the, know, the, please. For That's sure. It has to be, but I'll, I'll make sure you get your, your travel out of the way and you kind of get into a season where you're still and not having to, to try to squeeze me in. Um, You've mentioned a couple times on here um, about getting names from and being inspired by music, right? So, what music reigns supreme for Doc Swenson? Is it is oh. it a genre or an artist, or is it a variation? It's a variation, and it's not just me that is inspired by the music. So, for example, the whole uh, and it's not all music either. Sometimes, it's, like I said, it's movies. I'm more of a movie buff. Um, but uh, um, a lot of it come from, you know, my, my CFO actually names a lot of our products. He's a huge mu uh, music uh, a fan. And a lot of it's from, uh, you know, 80s and 90s. A lot of it's grunge era stuff um, mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, classic, uh, not, not classic, uh, um, uh, like sometimes it's blues, sometimes it's like old rock. I mean, it just depends on whatever he's coming up with and, uh, he's got a heck of a collection and used to have a little uh, uh, record label himself. So it kind of just bleeds into it. And he'd be like, you know, it'd be a great idea. Uh, you know, we'll name this uh, rye whiskey finished in Jamaican rum cast Funky Drummer. It works perfectly because funky is a common like tasting note in, in Jamaican rum. Yep. Like funky is a thing. Um, yep. And, you know, James Brown, uh, it's the most sampled like uh, drum uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sample ever in the world is Funky Drummer. Yep. Um, so it's like this just naturally works out. Reefer Madness was an ode to a sublime, you know, like smoke a few joints in the morning. Mm -hmm. You know, which, for the record, I don't even like weed. <laughs> I clearly fell in love with whiskey. <laughs> Maybe you could strike that. I don't really care, but it's not my thing. Um, but I love this. I love Sublime as a kid, and um, mm -hmm. that's a reference uh, to the movie Reefer Madness, and and which I found was not copyrighted. So, haha. Um, Anyways, it's just kind of funny because it fits. It's 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 smoky, it's funky, and it's spicy. You know, uh, so a lot of it's just kind of playful. Um, but there's no real genre attached to it, and mm -hmm. we don't always just do music and movies too. Yeah. Sometimes we pop up with something else. And you mentioned that Reefer Madness is not copyrighted, and that got my brain churning. Like, is it not copyrighted because it never <laughs> was, or because it's aged out of the copyright? Because that's how I start right. measuring um, things so as an old man. Now it's like, oh. Sh I used to know that answer. I don't entirely remember, but it never originally was copyrighted uh, and it might still be too old, uh, at least the original, because it's been redone so yeah. many times. Yeah, yeah. I don't think anybody's ever pulled a copyright on because the original wasn't. Um, I know it's been turned into like a play on Broadway at one point in time and there's more humor. Mm -hmm. you know, like, anyways, I just thought it was kind of fun. I was like, no way, this one's not actually copyrighted. Yeah, <laughs> do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That never happened. Full, full, so. full send on that. Um, so it, we're, we're right up on time. Um, Give me the the details of where maybe online I can purchase Doc Swenson's, where I should be to get updates on some of these uh, new things that you guys are doing in 2024 that I want to pick up for standard offerings or whatever. 
So yeah, actually, that's thank you for always leading me down there. That's the sales side I always forget about, to be honest. But um, uh, we've been very involved in updating our, our new our new newsletter. So that's by joining the Cool Kids Club at DocsWhiskey.com. Um, you'll get to see the the diagrams I was talking about, how we do our processing on there, what releases we're putting out. It also has access to our online shop, so you can find um, a lot of our limited releases. We maybe save ten or so cases aside for online retail, which usually drops pretty quickly. Um, but that newsletter, so if you sign up for the Cool Kids Club, we won't bombard you with a bunch of junk, but we're going to do like a, a, an updated once a month newsletter that highlights cool things that we're doing, where we're going to be, like where I might be doing a tasting in the country. Um, the products we'll be releasing, um, it'll give you that information um, as well as uh, uh, some access to some earlier like releases and drops too. So once again, that's uh, docswhiskey.com um, and, you know, follow us on Instagram. Uh, Doc Swinson's whiskey. Um, that all helps us, honestly, as a brand. I mean, your mm -hmm. word of mouth is our best form of marketing, right? I mean, we're, once again, we're a teeny company. There's nine of us in total. That includes our bottling team <laughs> and um, uh, trying to conquer, uh, you know, all 50 states um, plus four countries at the moment. So yeah. um, that's. I'll uh, add in this one last little bit. And so I've, I've been on your newsletter for a while in the cool kids club, um, kind of consuming your content and what I really, really enjoy from that form. And I, I marked this, uh, is to go back to, there's this drop down that says, what are you most interested in? Mm -hmm. And at the bottom of that drop down, it says dog photos. And I, you know, the first time I saw this, I absolutely <laughs> laughed out. I'm like, I just, I just chuckled to myself. I was like, uh, I appreciate somebody who puts these things together, but then also has a little bit of levity in there for um, the exact same template of every newsletter that exists in the whole world, except okay. for dog photos. That's awesome. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the person that put that together, um, who's actually my partner <laughs> uh, of all things. Yeah. I'm like, hey, would you be interested in doing this? She does like digital um, uh, mm -hmm. marketing and um, uh, people, there's always a joke because everybody thinks, so once again, I picked, I, I designed, oh, this is the new label that's also coming out. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, nice. Uh, yeah, it's all laserable, which is kind of fun. So I do like mixing a little technology with tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, for example, Doc Swinson's, this font is ridiculous. If you ever make a brand, don't ever use it. You can't use it for anything for, like that's legible. Um, <laughs> my mistake. Anyways, uh, people always think it says Dog Swinson's. It's a dog. And I'm like, where? there's no G, but I get it because the filigree, right. it looks like dogs. So yeah. it's a whole joke about dog Swinson and how we need to make dog toys. Um, right. So that was the pun in the dog thing. And we also found out from a market study that our largest uh, uh, or one of our most interested groups um, is people that own dogs. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> That's a really unique cut of market data that yeah, is. is both informative <laughs> and almost useless. Yeah. Right? Unless you're just like, well, put a dog in the picture. That's we got marketing imagery. Put a dog in it. Hey, you know, if you send us pictures of your dog with Doc Swinson's, we will certainly post it on our Instagram. We promise there, you. There that. it is. We we will start a, a dog Swinson uh, hashtag dog Swinson campaign for you right there. You can just, you, picture of the dog, picture of the Swinsons, and everything's happy. Um, like I said, I, I hate to do this, but I absolutely have to cut. I've got to go do a meeting. Like those things always happen. Oh, and work gets in the way sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Work gets in the way of the fun stuff. So thank you for giving me some of your time. And like I said, it's one of the things you can never recreate more of and it's incredibly valuable. So thank you, John. This has been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Awesome questions too. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Embellish Pot. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you're consuming this on. Leave a comment if possible. 
Hit me up on social media on TikTok or Instagram with Embellish Pod. Uh, give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found at www.embellishpod.com with all of my links, accounts, and contact details. Thanks for stopping by.